So we have two readings tonight. First will be from the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll look at Lord's Day 10, just understanding that we've come through another year and help us to understand again the providence of God and confidence for the year upcoming. That can be found on the Forms and Prayer 211 and Trinity Psalter Hymnal 876. So Lord's Day 10. What do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Question 28. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move or be moved. And if you would turn with me to Holy Scripture, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 12, we'll be reading from all six verses, but we'll focus our attention on verses 1 and two. So Isaiah chapter 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So far the reading of God's word. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, everyone has a favorite song. Some may are drawn to the melody, some to the lyrics of that song. 
It could be even that the song might not have anything to do with why it's your favorite song, but that it invokes a particular memory. And there might even be some amongst us, I'm sure, that have the talent to even create their own songs. They write about their experiences through different trials of life and through joyous events. And here the same is true with Isaiah. These six verses of chapter 12 are broken into two songs written by Isaiah as he reflects on what has happened. Much like Moses and the song of Israel, the the song Israel sang after the Exodus, and maybe Isaiah even borrowing some of the lyrics from that same song. So let us look at the first song of Isaiah chapter 12. We'll be looking at the first two verses. And our theme this evening as we examine Scripture is looking back to look ahead creates a joyful song of salvation. We'll look at this at three points. Point number one, we see anger is turned away. Two, that fear is driven away. And point number three, dependence is renewed. Isaiah opens his song with thankfulness that the anger of the Lord has turned away from him. Now, for God's anger to have turned away from Isaiah naturally means that God was displeased with him. Now, Isaiah was speaking about knowledge that has been gained through experience. Isaiah would have witnessed the anger of the Lord and the corporate sin of Judah but also the personal sins of the individuals. In chapter 1 of Isaiah, in verse 4, he explains the wickedness of the sinful nation of Judah, a people laden with iniquity, a people who have been forsaken by or forsaken the Lord. But since verses 1 and 2 are a song that are sung in the first person, Isaiah probably refers to his sins and his shortcomings, which he explains in chapter 6, in that great chapter, as he sees the glory of the Lord and he confesses, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. See, sin is something that is dealt with personally. You are responsible for your sins. You confess your sins and your iniquities. Corporate confession of sins does not remove the individual guilt and corruption that you carry. This corruption puts you personally in enmity with God. He is angry with you and the sins that you have committed against His holiness. Nothing in this world matters if you are under the wrath of God, if you are under His judgments. This is the supreme matter that needs to be dealt with. You must remove the wrath of God. Isaiah shifts his song from what was to what is his new reality explaining that the anger of the Lord has turned away. 
And how does Isaiah know this to be the case? Isaiah would have had trusted in that promise, that one in Genesis 3 that would come and crush the head of the serpent. But what bits of pieces does Isaiah have that would create this song of salvation? Revelation of Scripture is progressive. And as time passes through God's sovereign plan of redemption, what starts dim and cloudy becomes to be more clear. In chapter 6 of Isaiah, when he has been given that vision in the throne room of God, Isaiah is aware of his sins. And one of the seraphim flew with a burning coal and touched his lips and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins are atoned for. Isaiah has been given a picture of the removing of guilt and the atoning of sin. This is a vision, but did Isaiah think this is how it was supposed to work? And moving through the next chapters of Isaiah, in chapter 7, a sign was given. A child born of a virgin with the name Emmanuel. Then Isaiah speaks again of a child being born in chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will sit on the throne of David and establish and uphold with justice the righteousness from this time forth. And forevermore. And even more detail revealed in chapter 11. A shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his root, shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And this shall be his delight. Through Isaiah 6 through 11, there's a kingly figure with the Spirit of God resting upon him who has knowledge and wisdom, who will bring peace on earth, who has the power to execute just judgments. Isaiah has all the reason to sing a song of salvation about his God. And as time moves, more bits and pieces are revealed. However, for us, we live in a time of history of God's plan of redemption that we know who was born of the virgin with the name Emmanuel, who is the Prince of Peace and who sits on the throne of David, the one whom the Spirit of the Lord rests upon, who is the righteous judge. And as Isaiah explains later in chapter 53, the one whose shoulders the iniquity of us all were laid, and who was crushed by the will of God. It's Jesus Christ. He is the one who removed the guilt and sins by taking them from us. That means they're no longer yours. You had sinned. And they were many. And every day your debt increased. But they were all taken away. 
And there's not one single sin that is left for you to deal with. It's Christ that took them all. It's a great exchange. You've been given what you do not deserve. The righteousness of Christ is now yours, and God looks upon you as if you've never sinned. Not once, not ever. And you have placed upon Christ what he did not deserve. Your vile, foul, nasty, appalling sins. All of them. Every single one of them. But just because there was an exchange, your sins are removed and righteousness is now installed, that does not mean that sin has been properly dealt with. God cannot remove sin and sweep it under the rug or stuff it in that closet or in that drawer that nobody else is supposed to look in. You've not dealt with the problem. You've just shuffled it around. See, if this is the way that God acted, it would make him unjust. Sin must be atoned for. And Jesus Christ provides that atonement for us. He takes all our sins and places them upon his shoulders. The wrath of God, the righteous hatred for sin that demands punishment for the transgressions against that holy God is blasted upon Jesus Christ. Such volume and ferocity that would melt anyone like a wax figure before a blast furnace. But because Jesus Christ was truly man and truly God, and Jesus' divinity, God's righteous wrath was satisfied. Jesus removes your sins, but also removes and satisfies the righteous wrath that you deserve. And what does this removal of this burden bring to Isaiah? It brings him comfort. What a comfort it is that there's no more burden and weight of guilt of sin. No more being under God's righteous wrath. Comfort because what was broken has now been reconciled. Those enemies with God are now brought into his fellowship. Instead of an arrow of wrath drawn for you, he sets his love upon you. This is what Isaiah looks forward to. Isaiah waits for what God has promised, looking forward. While you look back and see the cross and the removal of God's wrath. But what does that look like for the Christian pilgrimage moving ahead? It looks like thanksgiving. This is the same way that Isaiah started his song. If the Lord's mercies are renewed daily, should be the same, should it be the same for our gratitude? Especially for our deliverance from that weight of that sin, that burden that drives you into the ground? Give thanks to the Lord. His mercies are new every day. 
And that's a song that you have every reason to sing. But there's no song to sing unless you're under God's wrath. This is your supreme need. It is the most important thing that must be resolved in your life. You must remove the wrath of God. Every day, the Lord increases the draw on His bow. And do not mistake His patience for powerlessness. He will release His draw and that righteous wrath arrow will hit its intended target. Either it will be you or it will be Jesus Christ. And you cannot do this, but thankfully Jesus Christ has. See, He is the only way to remove the Father's wrath. But you need to come to Him Confess his name. Believe in your heart that he is able to trust and have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if the wrath of God has been removed from us, what really is there left to fear? Now, that might be a bit reductionistic or overly simplifying the matter. It's probably a lot easier to say than really to put into practice. However, Jesus does say, do not fear those who kill the body, who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. See, God will drive away fear from his people, but only when you trust in him. Fear will not dissipate without faith. And how can you foster faith without fear? Especially if you cannot discern what's around the next corner or over the next hill. The Christian pilgrimage is long and it's hard. How are we supposed to know what will happen next? But looking back on how God has shown himself faithful and fulfilling, and his promises will help. Also reflect on your life and how God's providence has delivered you from the different trials and tribulations that you face. It will help foster faith so you can confidently say, I will trust. Now, I will trust is something also easier uttered been executed. But if you place yourself in Isaiah's sandals, I will trust becomes more than just pious banter. See, Isaiah and Judah are facing the Syrian and Ephraim coalition threat. Assyria nearly strangled Judah under the lousy leadership, remember, of King Ahaz. Things would seem like they are starting to crumble for Isaiah. But Syria and Ephraim, they were just smoldering stumps, and they turned out to be that way. And Isaiah learned from this experience and used it to trust in the Lord. Now some years later, another king of Assyria tried to conquer Judah, who came slandering and blaspheming the trustworthiness of the Lord. 
a servant sent to Jerusalem to speak to the king's behalf, said, Now therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion, and do not believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? And what was the response of Isaiah and King Hezekiah to the threat of Assyria? They prayed. Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet prayed and cried out to the Lord. And the Lord listened. And he sent an angel who defeated all the warriors, commanders, and officers of the Assyrian camp. They prayed, and the Lord delivered. They trusted in the power of their God, not in the swords or the chariots of men. And other men of Scripture have also learned to trust in the Lord. A good illustration of this is Moses. The Lord finds Moses in the desert and explains that he will use Moses to bring his people out of Egypt. The Lord, knowing that the king of Egypt will not let them go unless compelled by God's mighty hand, the Lord revealed to Moses what he would, that he would strike Egypt with many wonders and eventually they would leave and plunder the Egyptians. But Moses tries to convince God that he's not the man for the task. Unsuccessful to persuade God, Moses finds himself now before Pharaoh. And you can imagine each time Moses delivers the threat of the plague, his trust grew as he saw God doing exactly what he said he was going to do. But his trust in the Lord shines through after the last plague is executed. The last plague is that death of the firstborn. But before Moses describes the last plague to Pharaoh, he gave to him a strict warning. Pharaoh said this, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on that day you see my face, you shall die. And after that last plague was executed and the firstborn of all Egypt had died, Moses was summoned before Pharaoh. Now put yourself in Moses' sandals. Imagine if you spoke ten plagues to Pharaoh. The last one which just killed his firstborn. And now you're summoned back to see Pharaoh under strict orders that if you see him again, you will die. Now that was when Pharaoh's firstborn was alive. And you can imagine what Pharaoh's wrath might have been as a grieving father. It would have been even greater. Now if Moses, if there were any time for him to make an excuse, now would be the time. Yet with no excuse recorded in Scripture, 
before certain death of the threat of Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron find themselves before Pharaoh and they're asked to leave. See, what a drastic change in Moses from no trust to asking the Lord to send someone else to being fearless before Pharaoh because he trusted in the plan of his God. When you've surveyed your life this past year, has God given you opportunities to cultivate more trust in him? Situations where you're scared to step outside of your comfort zone. What a grace that he gives to you because your trust in God should be complete after realizing that God is my salvation. He is enough. Period. Full stop. No excuses. Nothing else should have to cultivate your trust in God. He is your salvation. Yet he knows that you're weak. So he graciously helps you to trust in him. Or do you complicate your trust in God? Mixing in other things. Are you trusting in your trust in God? Are you trusting in your theology? In your worship of God? Do you cling to these things to help you feel secure? This is not trust. It is by walking, it is walking by faith and by sight. Faith in God and by sight in my works. You're to walk by faith and not by sight. See, like Isaiah and Moses, looking back helps provide a positive outlook. Those who trust in God should be able to confess not being afraid. Trusting in God naturally provides fearlessness. Not from a false trust that combines your aids to help prop you up as you walk, but an earnest trust that looks to the Lord and only to Him. A new year is about to start. We can take the time of one of the many reading plans and take time to meditate on all the promise, promises of God. Get to know Him and see how faithful He is in achieving all that He says He would. God declared to you that there would be a Savior and he provided for you in Jesus Christ. And has not Christ accomplished all? There's nothing left to fear in life. If Christ has removed the wrath of God from you through his work of redemption, then the fear of death is removed because death is no longer an entrance into God's wrath, but an entrance into an everlasting relationship with the triune God. And if Christ went to the cross for you and purchased you with his blood, will he not keep you and cherish you? If you are his, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God. 
It must be then that confidence comes from faith. That faith causes fearlessness. That when you trust in God, that fear is driven away. So leap over that that chasm from fear to trust and discover what you have in the Lord. Don't be afraid of the challenges and trials that meet you along your pilgrimage. They are purposeful. Not only will your trust grow, but your dependence on Him will be renewed. Because when you trust in Him, you no longer trust in yourself. He becomes your strength and He becomes your song. A trust that leads to fearlessness must include a renewed dependence upon Him. The more you trust in Him, the more you need His strength and the more God will be your song. See, when God is the fountain of your strength, no longer are there pats on your back for a job well done, but you are praising Him, giving glory and honor to the God who delivered you. And the deeper you trust in Him, the more you rely on His strength, and the more He must be your song. When Isaiah confesses that he does not look to himself, but outside himself for something greater. God is his strength and his song. Isaiah claims that God is not an aid for your strength like spinach is for Popeye. Nor does Isaiah claim that your strength is a joint effort where you run your race as best to your abilities. It's only when you stumble in your trip that God picks you up and sets you on your path again. Isaiah states that the Lord God is my strength. He trusts in nothing else to be his strength. And Isaiah also states that God is his song. And Christians have good reason to praise their God. No matter the valley or peak that they find themselves traveling through. But let's suppose for a second you had to pick which two, which two Christians focus on more. Either God being their strength or their song. What do you think it would be? Or better yet, what is true for you? Would it be a good estimation that when they go to the Lord, it's for strength and not to sing a song? The simple reason that is when things are not going well, He is probably not your song, but your strength. However, when things are going well, God is neither your strength nor your song. Survey your year. Is your intensity greater in your prayer for strength than it is in your song of praise? Have you ever sung or prayed a prayer of praise with the same intensity and the same stamina as a prayer for strength when things were not going well? 
Now, if you have, that's good, and that shows Christian maturity. But I ask you this, have you ever sung or prayed with the same intensity and stamina immediately after asking for strength? When things are not going well, are you still singing a song to the Lord with the same intensity? Should it not be that whether we're in the highs or the lows, that God is worth all of our praise? Isaiah says that God is his strength and his song. Those go together, don't they? Or do they mix for you like oil and water? One has its place on top of the other. Whatever is more important in your eyes. Our strength and our song should be infused, creating a rich, warm drink for your soul. Praise can come from your lips whenever you need to ask for strength because you have a God who hears your prayers and equips you with all that you need. Now, looking forward, what if God is always your strength and never your song? What kind of outlook would that bring for the following year? A year of hard labor? Another year of discontentment because you do not have what you think you need? Maybe you're hearing the clanging of the world like the servants of Assyria telling you blasphemy things about your God that you know aren't to be the case. But what if you had a song-first mentality? What if every time you asked God for strength, you praised Him first? How would that change your outlook on the last year or the year that is to come? How would it have changed the trials and tribulations that you faced? Think about it. How would the year be different if we praised God before we asked Him for strength? Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, looking back, what song will you sing for 2023? Maybe you echo the words of Isaiah, wholeheartedly praising your God for the salvation that he has given you. And may you look only to him so that you continue to sing that beautiful song all the way through 2024. Amen. Let us pray. O righteous and holy Heavenly Father, help us to be a people who praise you, whether we're in the valleys or in the heights. That no matter our situation of life, no matter the time of day, no matter who we're around, that we will praise your holy name. 
when we confess and depend on you for strength, that we also praise your holy name, that you have given us a trial, that we may rely on you and trust in you evermore, that we see growth in our Christian walk, that we praise you, that you equip us and give us all that we need. Praise you that you're a great God, a God of faithfulness, of a God of covenant-keeping promises. Lord, help us to remember every time we draw near to you, no matter the situation, no matter the time of day, that we would be praising your holy name because you are worth all praise and all glory. And we long for that day when we can see it with our eyes. It's through Christ's name that we pray. Amen.